So if you were on a deserted island, there's 66 books in the Bible. Which one do you bring with you if you can only bring one? Somebody said Psalms. I like Psalms. What, what's that? Genesis? All right. We've got Genesis. We've got Psalms. We've got Matthew. All right. What book would you not bring? We got Revelation. You could bring 65 books. You can't bring one of them. Which book do you cut out first? Leviticus. Anna. What a sad thought. What's that? Numbers, Leviticus. Everybody goes to the Torah when it comes to these things. We like Genesis, but then it kind of falls off. Why don't we like Leviticus? It's a good question. We're, we have been for a couple of years in this series called Downloading the Bible, and it's really out of a commitment Tim and I made that we, we go through this because we periodically feel like, you know, it's easy for us to forget portions of the Bible that are less read than others. Most of us like the Psalms. Most of us like John or one of the Gospels, or maybe we like Ephesians, and uh, the ladies' Bible study is going through that th- right now. There's all of these different books that we kind of call our favorites, but it's really important that we don't forget the ones that are not our favorite. And we call this series Downloading the Bible. And if you're new here, you probably even have, haven't even seen one of these sermons. They kind of get sprinkled in between all the others. And we only do usually one at a time. So there won't be one like this next week. In fact, you probably won't see another sermon like the, this this year. But we're going to go through one of those odd portions of the Bible. Oh, no. It's always scary when this thing decides not to work. All right. There we go. And when we walk through this, we have to remind ourselves of this truth. The Bible is not written to us, it's written for us. That's an important detail, right? Every now and then I get one of those emails that's forwarded to me. What do you think, pastor? And then there's like this conversation uh, that ensues that says, okay, what do you think about this person has said this, then this person has said that. And it's a conversation that's going back and forth between two or three people. And email threads can, you know, it can you get all sorts of people in the list. Sometimes I get, I get emailed for our school and it says, hey, could you drop the kids off a little early? And then I get emails throughout the rest of the day. So-and-so says, yes, I can. So-and-so says, no, those aren't for me and they're not to me. But the, the Bible is actually written for us, but it's not written to us. This morning we're going to, Anna, look at Leviticus. Maybe the least favorite book of all of the books in the Bible. In fact, I was saying this to our worship task force, and one of the people on our worship planning team or task force, they said, you're joking, right? We're not actually doing a sermon on Leviticus. And I said, no, we really are. And they said, oh, you know, that was kind of the tone. You just go, oh, all right. So this is a painful week, and we're just going to get it out of the way. And next week, we'll have a good sermon, all right? And we just be okay with that. But we've got to go over these books of the Bible, and we'll try to make it interesting because Leviticus has got some things that are really important. For instance, how many of you have a problem with sin? So there are a bunch of you who are really not struggling with sin because you're not lying, because your hands are up. And the rest of you are actually struggling because you are liars, and you need what this sermon is all about, right? We all kind of fall short. The Bible says we fall short of the glory of God, and that means we sin. I have sinned this week. It has happened. I don't want to tell you about it, and you don't want to tell me about it, but we do sin, right? And the book of Leviticus is written about failure. 
It's written to a bunch of people who got told, listen, God has set you free. You are now no longer captives. You can go do all of this amazing stuff and walk with me. And God is amazing. And he is calling you out. And you are among all of the nations of the earth. You are called to be part of this amazing experiment where you're connected with the Father God. And then they start to bomb out with God almost immediately. It takes very little time, less than a couple of weeks as far as we can tell. Isn't that interesting? Just a few weeks. As soon as we say we're not going to sin, we do sin. That's just the way our race of people is. You know, Mark, uh, who is here, our missions moment this morning, Mark Cunningham, you know why many of those kids that he works with are struggling is because they're in families where addictions are present. And why, why, what is it about addiction that grabs a hold of us so much? It's because little sins get into our lives and they become bigger sins and then they take over our life, Right? Most people who are addicts don't mean to be addicts. They, they think they're jumping into something that's not going to grab a hold of them. Then it kind of gets twisted and eventually does get a hold of them in a really bad way, and they lose their children. It's painful, difficult, hurtful, and it goes back and forth. That's what Mark does for a living is helps those families out. And if we didn't have sin, we wouldn't have this problem. In fact, I, I suspect our government spends most of its time trying to deal with sin. Have you ever thought about this? Just read what the Congress is doing for a given week and what they're trying to do is to keep us all from being idiots with our money, you know? Let's get get the American populace to save and maybe we'll do that through putting money into the federal government and then the federal government will give it back to us in small increments. We all believe in that, right? It's a little bit of a joke there. This is what our government spends time on because we are a failed society, because we all have a little bit of brokenness in us and because it grows and it sometimes takes over. There was a guy who attended here a few years ago and he told me, he said he had kind of this brain burst moment, kind of a, a light bulb illuminated above his head and he said, I get it. And I said, what do you get? And he said, I get it. It's not just addiction is addictive. It's actually sin is addictive. Are potato chips addictive? They are, right? You know, we have this box of them in our house. And when I get home at the end of my work day, I always get drawn to that box. You know, there's salt and there's sweets, right? And we usually go one of two ways. Some of us go both ways. I'm a salt guy. And I want potato chips. Most days, if you say, would you like some potato? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit of an addiction. Some of us are addicted to television, video games, Facebook. Anybody addicted to Facebook? Come on. Admit it. There's a few of you. There's things in our life that grab a hold of us. And when those things get in the place of God, it becomes a really serious issue. And we call it addiction and we don't think it's very serious. And maybe it's not. But depending on how fast and how large those things grow, it does become that. And all sin is addictive. You know, you ever study the Bible? When did the first sin occur? Genesis 3. When did the first murder occur? Genesis 4. So for those of you who are keeping track, the first sin is eating a fruit that they were told not to eat a fruit of. And the second sin that we know of is murder. It didn't take us long, right? We got from here to there fast. And then by Genesis chapter 6, there's so many murders that God actually says, I'm sorry, I made mankind. That's Genesis 6. And that's why the flood comes, because he wants to push a gigantic reset button. The Bible actually begins with the slow decline into sin before God says, enough, I want to set you free. And he starts with a guy named Abraham, and then he moves through all of his children to a guy named Moses who writes the book of Leviticus. 
And he writes the book of Leviticus because he wants to write a letter to the people of Israel to say, listen, you guys need kind of a religious constitution. There's points of it that are very, very important for their society back then. And frankly, it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around. Our church has a constitution. Has, have you, you've all read it this week, right? Nancy, you've read it? Yeah, Nancy has read it. She's our moderator. She actually has to read it. The rest of us? Nobody has to read it, and pretty much nobody does read it. In our first service, three people raised their hand, Nancy, just so you know. So there is a constitution in this church, and it actually has all these things we're supposed to do, and most of them we actually do. Well, Leviticus is a little bit like the constitution for the early, we can't call it the church, it's the people of God before there was a church. And it's weird because it's written to them, And yet there are increments or little pieces of it, seeds of what will come later. You know, the predominant problem with us is we have a difficult time getting rid of sin. That's the the biggest issue for us. That's my problem. That's your problem. And we see the very beginning points of getting rid of sin in the book of Leviticus. That gets much larger, and it takes off from there. And frankly, it's still getting bigger today. God is still conquering sin today. But he begins in Leviticus by showing us how to do that. So let me just show you for a few minutes what I mean. And we're going to kind of focus on one passage of scripture. It's at the very center point. It's the most important passage in Leviticus. It's chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. We'll read a few verses. It'll be, they will be weird verses. Okay, I'm just warning you. It's a weird passage of scripture, but it's got a great point. So here's what you need to know about Leviticus. Here's the key thought of Leviticus. It says, be holy for I am holy. The word holy occurs 100 times in Leviticus. In the New Testament, again and again, the New Testament writers say that God is holy. And it actually says repeatedly that people in the church are supposed to be holy because God is holy. You know, those people didn't make that up. They didn't even just get it from Jesus when he was on earth. They actually got that from Leviticus. Paul, John, James, they got many of their thoughts from this book. Repeatedly, God says, be holy for I, the Lord God, am holy. Holy means to be set apart for a purpose. The first time it's used, it's, a, it's used of the temple furniture, which is never allowed to be used for anything other than a sacred purpose. You could never take one of the tables out of the temple and put it in your house. Even if it got worn out, it, there had to be some other process to get rid of it because nobody who used one of these tables would be considered part of Israel. They actually, you get kicked out of society for this because this temple was holy because God's presence dwelt there and God is holy. So the people of God were supposed to come there so they could be holy. You know, at one point, it actually Actually, and we'll skip to the next slide. It tells the people of Israel in Exodus 19 that they're to be priests. The book of Leviticus literally means of priests. And the people of God are all called to be priests. Do you need a priest? Come on. This is a trick question. You know it is. Do you need a priest? Yes, no. You know, in our church, we believe that every person who follows Jesus and knows Jesus has the Holy Spirit. That means you are called to be your own priest. You don't need me to connect with God. You don't need Tim to connect you to God, right? You have your own relationship with him. Some of you remind me of that periodically. I say, you should do this. And you say, no, God told me not to. That actually happens in our church. That's supposed to be a little funnier than you thought it was. But it actually happens periodically. It happens between Shelby and I. We go, God is leading us here. And Shelby says, ah, maybe God's not leading us here. And we have, to, we have to kind of work that out. That's part of being a church, part of being a family, is we find out what God is leading because every person has access to the Holy Spirit. We don't need a priest that actually gives us access to God because we already have access to God. But you know what priests were in the Old Testament was somebody, they were the people who represented God to the people. 
That was one of their big roles. And in that sense, the people of Israel were called to be priests. In Exodus 19, it actually says the people of God are to be a nation of priests. You know, the New Testament in First Peter talks about that with us. It says that we're to be a holy priesthood, called up into what God has for us. We're to reflect the world of what God's all about to the world that's surrounding us outside of these walls. We're called to up, in, and out. Each one of us is called to be a priest. And that comes to this kind of place in Leviticus where we kind of get our launch point. There's a whole section of Leviticus that's really weird. It's on being clean. How many of you eat pork? Just be honest. The rest of you, how many of you have ever eaten pork? Come on. Are there really people who have never eaten pork in this church? That's okay if you have. But... You know, this is one of the things in Leviticus that tells you not to do. Never eat pork. Why? Because in the ancient world, you didn't have all of the medication that helps pigs to be healthy food. And frankly, there's a whole bunch of other rules about that. We kind of get the misconception about those rules, that they help you get closer to God, when that's not at all the point. You know, today we have CrossFit, and I get mailers from Planet Fitness every week that tells me you got to come in and you got to get healthy. And we have all of this organic food, and we have organic food sections in our grocery stores, and we have all this different stuff. It's a real effort to be healthy again, right? Well, God started that long before people in the 21st century did. God actually incorporated a piece of Leviticus into his Bible and say, listen, I want you guys to be healthy. You need to cut some of the things out of your diet that might hurt you. There's, it's not that all of those things are necessarily wrong. It's that they're actually going to damage your bodies. And in the ancient world, they did because they didn't have all of the stuff we have today. Interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we call those things laws and we wonder about them, but they're actually kind of about being clean and helping people be healthy. And then there's the system for walking with God, which is all about these sacrifices, which are just plain weird. That's what Leviticus has in it. Let me tell you two other things that, that just kind of connect Leviticus to the New Testament, okay? There's two, two moments in the Old Testament that kind of rise above every other, and they celebrated them every, every year. One was called Passover, and one was called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. We just passed the Day of Atonement. Did you notice this? Anybody, anybody Jewish enough to recognize that we just passed the Day of Atonement? It's the second to last feast in the Jewish calendar. Now, here's what you need to know about these two things. They both come from Leviticus. They're both laid out in Leviticus ch- chapter 23. And what we're going to read next is the ritual about the Day of Atonement. Why do you think we would spend time reading about an Old Testament feast the 10th day of the 7th month. Why would we spend time reading about that? These questions, at first you were answering them all. And now as I keep going, you're starting to go, I don't think I can dare to speak. You know, the person who raises their head above the gopher hole is likely to be embarrassed, and we're not going to step into that. Well, let me tell you that this word atonement is not a word that goes away, right? It means sin removal, sin covered up, sin gone. Wouldn't that be great? It's a word that still is important to us today. And frankly, it's your problem and it's my problem. In the initial beginning point where the Bible starts to investigate and and kind of figure out how can God get rid of our sin, it actually goes all the way back to Leviticus, to this passage. So read with me. This is chapter 16 of Leviticus. And I guarantee, if you don't find it weird, tell me afterwards because I want to know why you're weird, okay? Because this is a strange passage. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. They drew near before the Lord and they died. 
Does that make you wonder a little? Nadab and Abihu were their names, and they were priests, and they were called to minister before the Lord, and he gave them specific instructions. And then they walked into his presence, and they offered this fire that was unauthorized. It was a weird sort of incense, and they died. The presence of God, when they didn't live up to what he was calling them to do, it wasn't as though God killed them so much as they just died because you can't handle God's presence when you're a sinner. That's still true today. I believe that just as much now as I did then. Now, now, the presence of God doesn't live up here on the altar, which is a little different. But if you or I entered heaven and we had some sin in us and we kind of got connected to God in that way, I think we would start to shake in a weird way. You know, in moments in my life when I've really come close to God, you know what I felt? I felt in the most awesome way afraid. I felt loved and afraid at the same time. Those two things go together with God. And these people drew near to God, but they actually weren't afraid enough. They didn't actually do what he told them to do. And so they died, and they died in the temple, which is why this whole thing started. The temple had a real problem. It had dead bodies in it. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that, they may, so that he may not die. In other words, you don't walk into God's presence when you want to. You walk into God's presence when we set this time apart and we're ready. There needs to be a whole cleansing operation or else you're going to walk into the presence of God and bad things are going to happen. Your heart's not going to be prepared and you're going to be hurt. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now it sounds weird to us, this whole sacrifice. But let me tell you, this is not just an Old Testament thing. The New Testament tells us something about this as well. Look at this verse. Have you ever read this in Hebrews? It's one of the last books in the whole Bible. It's written to the Jewish people, but it's written in the era of the church. It's written after Jesus ascended into heaven. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is a truth that is easy to walk past. Because sin seems like it doesn't have so many consequences for us, because we don't see that we're walking apart from God so quickly, it's easy for us to think that sin's not such a big deal. But sin always costs someone something. And in the Old Testament, God wanted these people to know that. And so when he was teaching them, he said, listen, you always have to show up with something whose blood is going to be shed, because I never want you to think that somehow your sin is no big deal, because sin is a big deal. Is sin a big deal? It is, right? Sin never is without consequences. Every time we fail, it hurts someone. Maybe just ourselves, but it hurts someone. And even when we're just hurt, that hurts the people who love us. And that means that the world around us is damaged. And the the effects of one single tiny little sin, they, they go on for like ripples in a pond for who knows how long. Well, frankly, they go on until this story keeps moving forward. So we'll read. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and that bull is going to die, and a ram for a burnt offering, and that ram's going to die. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen. These are holy garments that were only used for this. And shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats. Keep your eye on these goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Are you watching? Does, no, does anybody want to not think this is weird? It's weird, right? Okay. It's not weird enough. We need to keep reading. 
Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take these two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two of goats. That's kind of like casting dice. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the Azazel. What's that about? You need to think deeply with me this morning. This is important. Some things in Leviticus are not important to us. I don't want to know if you had bacon for breakfast, for instance. I don't care. All right? To join this church, you don't have to follow the ritual rules of Leviticus. You don't have to live up to all of the things in this book. We're a Christian church. That stuff is in the old time. Jesus has died, and and there's a new covenant. We talked about that last week in preparation for communion. There's a new covenant. And that means this covenant is gone. And yet there are pieces that show you the way forward. And these two goats, they are critically important. And this passage is hugely valuable. And you might not know it unless we spend a little time talking about it. So one of these goats is for God. And that goat has to do with forgiveness. It has to do with God having the, the penalty for sin, which always costs blood. It always costs somebody something. They had to remember that, so one of these goats died, and that was the one that was given to God. And then there's this other word, and it's weird, right? Azazel. How many of you think that if you Googled that, you would find something interesting? You would. And what you would find is a bunch of people who are not sure what to think about that. Because for thousands of years, this word has been, has been discussed. Nobody knows for sure what it means. What happens with this goat is the only way we know what the word means. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. That goat dies. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. In other words, they took the sin of the people and they put it on this goat, and they named it the Azazel goat. And the best guess as far as what that word means is, that's the goat where all the demons go. Isn't that interesting? So in that ancient world, they actually thought they had such a problem with sin that it was causing addictions in their midst, and those addictions were like little portals for the enemy, and they were taken advantage of, and then like now, There were people who were given into those sins so much that it was breaking them and it was hurting them and it was damaging them and it was destroying their lives. And so one thing they had to do was say, God, we're sorry. And one goat died to signify that they were sorry. It had to cost them. So they took of the herds that they, that they, they were an agricultural people. So they had goats and those goats, those goats died and they, they killed a goat every year and said, okay, please take the sin of our people and forgive it. But then there was this other goat and they said, and the priest would lay his hands on this goat. I'm not a priest, but they laid their hands on this goat and all of the sin of the people, and I suspect all the demons of the people, went on this goat and it wandered out into the desert land and you hoped it didn't land in your backyard someday. This is true. Is this weird? Have you ever heard this before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard this before. Wow. I'm so excited. We're actually breaking new territory for most of you. All right. So here's why this is fascinating, okay? In John 19.30, Jesus is on the cross and he issues just a few words, right? How many of you like goats? This is good news for goats. It is finished. That means nobody has to kill any more goats. Nobody has to kill any more bulls, rams. All of this stuff is gone. Why is it finished? What happens when Jesus says that line? What's the next line? 
Jesus gives up his, his ghost or his spirit. Jesus dies. And he says, it is finished. It's done. And it's as though Jesus says, I'm the goat that was devoted to God. I'm the one who will take all of the sin of these people. I will take every bit of what is broken about mankind and I will provide forgiveness for every person who will accept my free gift of salvation. You've heard it said that way countless times, right? What you maybe didn't know is that it started 3,400 years ago with this really weird ritual with two goats that were led into the temple. And one of them, just like Jesus, was kind of the place that was the, the sacrifice. But then there was this other goat. And what are we to do with this other goat? What, what takes away the sin of this people and where do those sins go? Where does all that demonic, nasty stuff? You know, whenever you sin, you're empowering the enemy. Do you know that? Every sin that you do has consequences and those consequences go beyond the sociological. They're not just things that affect you and your friends and your family. They're actually things that affect everybody else around you because it affects the spiritual realm that we don't see and don't understand very well. Frankly, this word called atonement, which is what this day is all about, we don't understand very well. But the second one of those goats is so important. And it connects to the first in a really very important way. In 1 John 1, 8, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the first goat dies, and God says, Okay, I see that you're asking for forgiveness. But then it says another line. Somebody read it. No, 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 no. We're not quite there. Just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, all of our unrighteousness. What's that about? So we get forgiven, and that means that God no longer holds us accountable for our sins. Well, that's a whole different thing than being sin-free, right? We need more than just to be forgiven. We need to get rid of what's inside of us because the things that make us sin, where do they come from? They're inside of us. This stuff is wrong and it's inside of the very core of our being and it's addictive and it grabs a hold of us and it keeps us going in these wrong directions and once we do one thing wrong, you know, one of our, one of our, one of our addictions is worry. You ever notice this? We worry, right? We lose sleep. We eat too much. We do all these different things because we're actually taking control of stuff that's not ours and we're living in fear. Paul writes, be anxious about nothing but in everything by prayer and petition, make your request known to God with thanksgiving. He says this line, with thanksgiving. And when he says all of that, I think about that. I think it's almost as though anxiety comes from worry, which comes from fear. And by the time you get to anxiety, and I have been there personally, you become somebody who is addicted to doubt. That's what that is. And it's as though this priest is taking all of that doubt and all of that heroin addiction and all of that cocaine addiction and alcohol addiction and sex addiction and eating addiction and every other failure, addiction to gossip, addiction to talking bad, addiction to hating people, addiction to unforgiveness, whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it this stuff addiction or whatever, we can call it sin. And he's putting it on this one go. So what happened to Jesus? Did he stay dead? No, right? He actually took all of our sins upon himself. The Bible says that he took our he who became, who knew no sin became sin for all of us, right? He took all those sins, he became the Azazel go. 
And he took every bit of that sin. All of this is just ritual imagery that's leading up to the place where it would be finished. And Jesus is the one who is going to make sure it is finished. And what he does is he offers us forgiveness, but then he offers us another line. And here it says it, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a different line than to be forgiven. And you need to know that because it's so important that you know that whatever's in your past, you can walk free from. You can be forgiven from it. And if you've asked God to forgive it and you've asked the people who have been affected by it to to forgive you, then you can be forgiven. That's clear. But what's not as clear for us in the church is that we can walk free of it as well. Paul writes in Galatians, he says, it is for freedom that we have been set free. And the very beginning of this whole story has to do with this Passover service where God set the children of Israel free from the slavery into Egypt. Well, Jesus set us free from a slavery as well, right? He set us free from a slavery to sin. He set us free from a slavery that was within us. And how did he do that? He took all of that stuff upon himself and he says, if you will accept my power in your life instead of your own power, I will help you to walk free of whatever it is that has entangled you. Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 12 rather says that sin so easily entangles us and we have to let go of it and we have to hand it to Jesus. And then he, like that goat that wanders off into the desert, takes all of our sin, and it's gone for good. Isn't that interesting? It goes on, one last little line. My little children, I am writing these things to you. John is very old when he writes this passage. He's probably 90 plus years of age. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he starts by saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. But I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. You know, one of the things that we do to each other is we tell each other, if you sin, I will never look at you again. I will never talk to you. If you do this, we all have our pet sin that we say, I don't like that person who does whatever it is. You know that when you do that, you enslave them more to that sin. And what John does is he sets us all free because he understands the Bible better than we do and he understands Jesus' gift better than we do. He says, Jesus sets us free from that sin. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's cleansed. So my little children, I'm telling you that you can walk free of that sin and you can be forgiven from that sin because if you know you can be forgiven and you're going to be cleansed, then you won't sin anymore. You know what motivates you to not sin? When you know you can be free of sin. You know what ties you to sin? is when you constantly feel the guilt of sin. And when brothers and sisters around us look at each other and we say, you know what, you're a sinner. Well, (laughs) yeah, you are, and so am I, right? And when we look around and we point the finger and we get negative on each other, what we're doing is we're turning our back on what John wrote in this passage. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that forgiveness and that cleansing makes sure that we are able to not sin again. We might sin, but this is what sets us free so that we don't have to sin. It gives us the opportunity to walk free of sin. But if anyone does sin, because you might, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it says this line, he is the propitiation for our sins, big word there, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, he is the propitiation. It's a Greek word. means halasmos, or sounds like halasmos. You know what it means in English? Atonement. And you know what Levitical word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament? Same word. In other words, the Day of Atonement is about getting free. And what that word literally means is Jesus is the atonement for our sins. Let me break this down very simply because we could get lost in the complexity of this passage. 
On one hand, Jesus set you free to be forgiven. And he said, God doesn't hold it against you anymore. And some of us need to ask ourselves, why are we holding it against ourselves or against other people? But then there's another question. And that's that why are we so entangled and tied to our failures and think we can't get free? You ever hear somebody say, well, I'm just a sinner. We all are, right? This passage says, no, you don't have to be. You can be set free from sin. You can be set free from whatever it is, that little brief thing that kind of eats you. And it's not there all the time, but it's tiny, but you want to be done with it. You want to be able to do what you should do instead of what you want to do. Well, in this passage, what Jesus lays out for us is that he has begun a process. And how far did he plan it? 3,400 years ago, the the writers of the Old Testament were talking about this storyline. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. Atonement, 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 till Jesus sits on the cross and he's hanging there and he looks down from on high and he says, it is finished. I have taken all of the sin of this people on myself and I have taken all of the guilt on myself and God will forgive them Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, he says. And then he takes all of that sin and he dies. And it's gone. How many of you hate history? Just honestly, how many of you just don't like history at all? There's 30% of you who are liars. There's a lot of you who don't like history. But you know what's worse is there's a whole bunch more of you. You might not like Civil War history or American history or world history, but you are addicted to your own history. And you're looking back at your own failures again and again and again. And Jesus is saying, I have cleansed you from that. Let it go. You know, there's a really easy song I could sing at this point. It's on every radio station right now, right? What's that movie with the little girls? Yeah, Frozen. Yeah, I could sing that. We could just sing, let it go. That we, praise team could end this service with let it No. It's way too profound a moment for that, right? When we look back at our failures, God is saying, let it go. And don't just let it go, but let it go to Jesus. And some of you, if you have some sin in your life that's really serious, you need to spend time alone with God and you need to picture the cross and you need to say, I'm just going to put my sin on that Jesus. You think that's mean? No, he wants your sin. He's actually saying, no, give it to me. Let it go. Let it leave this room and not be here anymore. I'm going to pray a prayer to end the service, and I'm going to pray a prayer that believes that this is true. Because many of us don't believe it. We walk, I'm convinced the church walks in a lack of belief about the cleansing that God offers through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask that God would cleanse you. And if you have something in your heart, I want you to just kind of put your hands hands out there like this. And you can just picture your sin and then give it to Jesus this morning, okay? And say, I don't know how I'm going to beat this sin, whatever it is. Maybe it's worry. It might not be one of those big things, but just put it out there and say, I want Jesus to take that sin, okay? And we're going to end this service and the praise team is going to lead us, but I'm going to end this, this message with just a little bit of a time where we say, God, take our sin. Whatever's in our heart, let's let it go because it entangles us and it ties us down from being the people we're called to be. Join me in prayer. God, the people in this room are like the people in every room and that means they've failed and that means that I've failed. And we can look back over our history and we can see those sins and we can see those failures. And if we've confessed our sins, if we've laid them before the throne of grace, then what the Bible tells us is that you are faithful and just to forgive us. That means you're not going to hold them against us, but also that you want to take them so they don't continue to be a problem. I think of a friend of mine who walked into addiction for a long time, and recently he told me how God just set him free. 
One day, just praying like this, he held out his hands before God and said, I can't stop this one activity that I just keep engaging in and it's so nasty and so evil and it's hurting the relationships in my life and he put it out there in front of you and you took it. And it reminded me again that we have a more powerful God than we tend to think. We are, we are very, very addicted to doubt. And we, we consistently question whether you can actually take the stuff that eats us. We, we think we're powerless, so we think you're powerless. But God, right now in the, in the quiet of our own little souls in this room, we just want to hand you our sin and we want to ask that you would set it free. You know, we just picture that goat heading over the Judean desert, you know, over one of those hilltops and you're never going to see it again. That goat's gone. Well, Jesus took those sins in a much different way in a much more profound way, in a way that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. And we need our sins to be on that Jesus. So those sins are nailed to the cross and they don't need to be borne by us. He took our shame. He took our blame. And so God, this morning, we ask that you would set these people free. Whatever they're holding out before you, we say in the name of Jesus that it can be gone. It can just disappear because you are that good and you are that powerful. Some of us need to agree with you about that, that stuff in our lives. And I pray that you would just bless people with the ability to walk into that freedom, that you, would walk in, that you would walk us into what it means to be actual children of God, not ensconced, not tied down, not boxed in by our sins, by our failures, and by our regrets. Help us to walk into the freedom that you have for us. And God, for some of us, that means that we're going to have to trust you that you've taken that stuff, and we're going to start to walk differently. We're just going to start to move differently. We're going to agree with you about those failures, and we're going to say, okay, they are gone because Jesus agreed to take them. Who are we to stand in the face of the almighty God of the universe when you want to take our sins? But so often we've done that, and it's been an affront to you and your sovereignty, and we ask your forgiveness. And we ask that you would help us to walk in freedom so that we can be the children that we are called to be, fully devoted with you, to you, and walking with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.